Be advised, Blue Rose Task Force is filled with secrets. Welcome to the Blue Rose Task Force Podcast, where we look deeply into Twin Peaks as a whole, one episode at a time, using the full scope of the show Twin Peaks and all its official mania. We don't use the word canon, but we consider all official releases important because Lynch and Frost have proved their presence. And we welcome all input into the collective consciousness that is the Twin Peaks community and wider universe. This podcast is usually a watch-along podcast for those who've seen all of Twin Peaks, including the third season which we do consider as we go along. And today, that is absolutely no different. (laughs) But today, instead of looking at Twin Peaks proper, we are going to look at one of my my larger interpretations. And I've referenced it around this this show here and there. But I thought as as a nice gift for all my wonderful listeners, thought, you know, maybe we should put it up in the public feed. And we do have this over already at the uh, at the 25YL Patreon with every one of my um, Electricity Nexus columns in audio format, as well as, you know, the written word over at 25YL. But, um, yeah, I thought it'd be nice to have the audio version of my, um, my big overarching theory here, too. And... Um, yeah, nice little, nice little present for you guys since you've been with me the whole year, and um, you know, I I just can't appreciate you enough. So yeah, anyway, here we go. It's um, this was originally published in five parts in early January of 2019, and then a full version, all in one article, was published in um, early September of 2020, kind of like a trade paperback if you're a comic book uh, reader. And, um, yeah, I'm just going to dig into it. If you feel like the central trauma of Twin Peaks, the murder of Laura Palmer, shouldn't slash can't be undone, this Twin Peaks theory is for you. No matter how many season three moments involve turning away from or covering over this fundamental trauma, reality cannot be expunged or explained away by persistent disinformation. What's my alternative explanation to the original Twin Peaks timeline being outright erased at the end of season three finale? Adam Stewart from the Diane podcast was kind enough to read this before publication and summarize my thesis as such. A dream slash nightmare born of trauma is encroaching on reality. To escape it, the characters who are caught in a between place need to make a choice, stagnate and enter the darkness, or join the world and step into the light. He then suggested I saw Twin Peaks Season 3 as a story about growth, change, and how to move beyond trauma or not. I cannot say it more concisely than that, but I can elaborate. The between place he mentioned is Season 3 itself. 
It doesn't belong to the timeline or lodge space, but is made from both states. And all the characters trapped inside it are frozen in place or stuck in loops, in desperate need of restarting their energy. If you need a visual metaphor to get started to see how Season 3 operates as an in-between state, imagine you're in a movie theater. Season 1, Season 2, and Fire Walk With Me make up the screen itself. Lodge space is the projector in the back, projecting a veil of images over the screen. Season 3 is in the seats with the audience as we constantly reinterpret what we see in front of us. Continue on with this section of Twin Peaks article to see the three most important scenes in Season 3 that define this layering reality. Otherwise, here's the easy navigation if you'd like to skip ahead to the following sections. And for audio listeners, it's kind of your table of contents. Three Season 3 scenes that explain reality and how to navigate it. Defining the states of reality scene in Twin Peaks. Ways we see the in-between state of reality in Season 3. How Lodge Space and Timeline are tethered to and influence the in-between reality. How Dale Cooper's time looping defines the shape of the in-between reality. How trauma cycles trap characters in the in-between reality. How help, if chosen, assists characters as they approach the timeline. Case studies. How characters in Season 3 navigate the in-between state. And how Dale Cooper navigates through the in-between reality state. The three Season 3 moments that explain reality and how to navigate it. There are three sections of dialogue my Twin Peaks theory finds incredibly important for how I think reality within Season 3 is structured. One, Margaret's phone call to Hawk in Part 10. Two, the conversation between an insurance salesman and Lucy in Part 1. And three, Part of an exchange between Frank Truman and Hawk in Part 11. In Part 10, Margaret Lannerman says to Hawk just before Rebecca Del Rio sings No Stars in the Roadhouse. Hawk, electricity is humming. You hear it in the mountains and rivers. You see it dance among the seas and stars and glowing around the moon. But in these days, the glow is dying. What will be in the darkness that remains? The Truman brothers are both true men. They are your brothers, and the others, the good ones who have been with you. Now the circle is almost complete. Watch and listen to the dream of a time and space. It all comes out now, flowing like a river, that which is and is not. Hawk, Laura is the one. Pamela Terzak of the Between Two Worlds Facebook group put it in a most easy-to-understand way. If Laura is the one, that could very easily be an answer to that which is not, which means Laura is, and conversely Carrie is not. This is a fantastic connection all by itself, but I'll take Pamela's idea and raise her realities. There is a reality that is the one where Laura died, and a reality that is not, 
the one where Dale takes Laura from the fire walk with me flashback and she becomes Carrie. I know it sounds like I'm endorsing multiple timelines, but I'm not. There's a timeline where Laura Palmer died, and the other quote-unquote timeline, if you can call it that, is a dream. A dream, as Margaret says, made of a time and space. Rather than a time and space dreaming this all up, which would encompass everything within season three, the dream is made of a time likely beginning in 1989 and a space spreading from Twin Peaks, Washington. This dream is what Dale works within after he accesses it in part 17 from Jeffrey's Slippery 8 made from an owlring symbol, a symbol proven to be a a direct connection into the waiting room. This dream that Margaret refers to is a reality made up of lodge space, just like Dale's first dream in episode two of season one back in 1990. Just because Margaret calls it a dream, though, doesn't mean it is all a dream, as so many theories put it. If it was all a dream, there wouldn't be so many random characters caught up in it. Plus, it wouldn't be flowing like a river at Margaret and Hawk. They would already be in it. Margaret wouldn't be worried about lodge space flowing over the timeline. She would speak of a current instead, as if they were all part of the same watery state. She's worried about lodge space convincing people that it's a dream, that its dream is conveniently more real than a world where a girl was killed under traumatic, complicated circumstances. What we have are two states of reality, the timeline we instinctively understand, and lodge space with its dreamy nonlinear behaviors. And as we see in my next choice of dialogue, it's important to choose between them. The dialogue between the insurance salesman and Lucy, one that brings up the Truman Brothers again. Insurance salesman. I'd like to see Sheriff Truman. Lucy. Which one? Salesman. Sheriff Truman isn't here? Lucy. Well, do you know which one? It could make a difference. Salesman. Uh, no, ma'am. Lucy. One is sick and the other is fishing. Why are the Truman brothers called out specifically? Because they are symbols of their states of reality. Harry Truman represents the timeline where Laura Palmer 100% died like we know from the original two seasons of Twin Peaks. He is probably sick because Lodge Space is coming at him like a river. Frank Truman is rooted in the front lines of season three where aspects of Lodge Space are asserting themselves all over. How is that signified in Lucy's simple dialogue? There's an immediate commonality with Pete Martell, who'd gone fishing when he did not discover Laura Palmer's body on the shore in reality that's not. Pete Martell fishing is literally the first divergent event in the Lodge Space dream after Laura's body glitches away from the shore. The Lodge Space is part of his in-between territory? Frank is not part of Lodge Space itself. He is a true man, after all. Margaret said so. But his presence is also a signpost for where the dream intrudes. 
Then there's this part of an interaction between Frank and Hawk as they looked at Hawk's map in part 11. Hawk. The symbol's a type of fire. More like modern-day electricity. Frank. Good? Hawk. It depends. It depends on the intention. The intention behind the fire. Here is another reference to electricity. Coupled with Margaret's electricity is humming, you hear it in the mountains and rivers, you see it dance among the seas and stars and glowing around the moon. Not only do we know electricity is everywhere, it appears electricity can be used for good, positive, while another intent could lead to darkness, negative. This implies there is a choice that needs to be made. I contend the choices between the timeline with Laura Palmer, a positive intention, or an oncoming lodge space with Carrie, a negative intention. And according to Margaret's words above, I think Harry and Frank Truman are some of the good guys who can use electricity in a positive way to push back the lodge's darkness. I'm going to explain all of this extensively, but let me begin by looking at the two main states of reality the timeline, and lodge space. Before I explain how I see physical reality, timeline, and an ethereal reality, lodge space, and the hybrid state of in-between reality in the middle, I'd like to define my terms. I will be using many diagrams throughout this theory that include particular color coding. The timeline side is blue, is the original Twin Peaks timeline that's of the world. And the world is coded blue in the song Questions of in a World of Blue. Also, Jacoby's glasses, one side is blue. And Lodge Space side is going to be noted in red. The red curtains, fire imagery, and Jacoby's other lens. And the middle state between them is marked as purple. Jacoby's lenses together provide a purple hue to the wearer. And the fireman, provider of balance, per my previous theories, his realm is also purple. And then for the steps between these states, we've got energy, which is green. You know, the green traffic light means traffic can flow rather than stand still. And the green sparkles on Dougie's case files seems to coax Cooper into motion as well. Material and non-material states of reality. The esoteric Buddhism model. Author Laird Scranton, in a recent interview on the Higher Side Chats podcast, explained how when researching near-forgotten spiritual teachings, he uncovered an esoteric Buddhist tradition of universes forming in pairs. One material, which matches with what I'm calling the timeline, and one non-material, which matches with my definition of lodge space. A form of energy cycles between these two universes, like sand in an hourglass timer, from one end to the other, as if each universe was a dipole. When the energy makes it all the way to one pole, the polarity reverses and the energy begins to flow back to the other pole, and the cycle begins anew. So in here we have a green arrow pointing from the red non-material side over to the blue material side. 
And in the next diagram, we have the blue and the red on each side with a, with a circle made of two arrows uh, pointing circularly around each other. And then in the third diagram, we have the green arrow pointing from the blue material side back to the non-material side. Scranton says the flowing energy is essential to life and it cycles the same way as natural water cycle does on Earth. In Twin Peaks' term, this energy is signified by natural electricity, everything from the impulses inside us to what flows in ley lines, fire on Hawk's living map, and alternating current electricity, which Lynch has been fascinated by since at least Ronnie Rocket. This energy hums, can be heard in the mountains and rivers, can be seen dancing among the seas and stars and glowing around the moon. It's as natural as bodies of water and clouds in the sky, as humidity and rain, and it's within every character in season three. In addition to energy traveling between the universes, Scranton suggests that movement from the non-material to material is what ghosts may do, and in Twin Peaks theory terms, is what the fireman does. Though if you believe the giant's rephrased question of where have you gone, the material also appears to find a way to travel to the non-material under certain circumstances as well. And there are portals and mirrors and windows, which allow access from one to the other. There is a framework within Twin Peaks that allows for travel between the two universes. Many different aspects of the non-material universe have been described within the three seasons of Twin Peaks and the books, Secret History of Twin Peaks and Final Dossier in particular, in varying levels of esoteric and material. All of these aspects, whether gotten through direct communication with the non-material or if its presence is merely felt, describe an aspect of lodge space much in the same way the old adage works with blind men describing different desperate parts of an elephant. Any one of us can describe an aspect of the non-material and none of us can describe the entire thing. Our point of view from inside the material universe limits our ability to understand the other, yet we can describe aspects of a non-material universe. And here I show a giant list of things that equal aspects of non-material universe that we see within Twin Peaks, and some of it is Nez Perce Lodge lore, dreams, theosophy, official slash unofficial versions, the Zone, Science, Town History Books, Microfiche, Intrapersonal Alchemy, Sparkle slash Drugs, Transcendental Meditation, Quantum Physics slash Multiverse, Multiple Timelines, Freemasons slash Illuminati, Crowley Sex Magic slash Thelema Esoteric Buddhism, Alternating Current Electricity, Ley Lines, Project Signs slash Grudge slash Blue Book, UFO Lore, Tall Nordic Types, Aliens, Pygmies, Manahuni, Portals, The Bible, Mirrors, 
Messiah stories and Utuku mythology. But why would the universes need the communication? Well, Scranton says when all the energy is almost completely in one universe, the other universe is at its weakest and needs the stronger universes to take care of it. Even though it can't be seen or felt, the universe needs to be remembered or it could cease to exist. And both universes need to survive to maintain balance, otherwise the cycle goes U-shaped and dissipates. Neither universe is higher or lower in importance. They are side by side. One cannot exist without the other. And to this end, the universes need to train caretakers on the other side to prevent the twin universes' demise. Scranton says this communication from the non-material to the material comes in these typical forms. Vivid images and dreams. Synchronicities. Unusual behavior of animals. Divination. Clairvoyance and paranormal ways of knowing things. To me, this doesn't sound like regularly occurring events in Twin Peaks at all. <laughs> Esoteric Buddhism doesn't have to explain everything exactly, but it sure matches well with everything about memory and the fireman's constant quest for balance that allows for evolution, as I described in How the Fireman Brings Back Some Memories. Two universes of different states needing to stay in balance with one another seems apt for what we see in Season 3 and the Frost books. Why, if both universes are, either, are neither strictly positive nor negative by nature, does it sound like I was making a case for the timeline being strictly positive on a large space being strictly negative? Because Twin Peaks is from the perspective of human beings. In terms of human beings within the cycle of life, positive energy flow is through the timeline. The only time the flow reverses to Lodge Space is when a character dies, because that's a person's natural cycle. Why I think most of Season 3 happens in an in-between state is because no scene is ever cut and dry as to whether it is in the timeline or Lodge Space. Fans are constantly debating if the Roadhouse is material or non-material, if Audrey is in a mental institution or the Black Lodge. Fans debate if the Las Vegas scenes are any bit real or if everything in Season 3 is a dream. And there is a debate if Season 3 is connected to Seasons 1 and 2 or if it erases them outright, and whether or not Fire Walk With Me ending is invalidated by the Season 3 ending. There are good arguments for either side of any of these debates, because Season 3 is exactly in the middle of these issues. There is equal evidence of material and non-material states because it is an in-between state of reality, a third state entirely. Which fits really well considering the Season 3 script is an exact middle point between David Lynch and Mark Frost. The script is the one. I believe the Season 3 script is a middle point between Mark Frost and David Lynch, best explained by this quote from Frost. I would sit at the keyboard, and David would sit in a comfy chair, and we would go back and forth. You threw your minds up toward the ceiling, and they met somewhere near the light fixtures. The script becomes written by a third party, 
the author is someone called Lynch Frost. Therefore, I have an image where Frost is in blue with a green line pointing toward the circle of season three script, which is written in purple. And a green line is coming from the other side of that circle pointing toward Lynch, who is uh, in red. Neither Frost nor Lynch are positive or negative in this diagram. I merely put Frost on the timeline side because of his expressed need to include the greater world and its concerns and politics into season three, while I put David Lynch on the side of Lodge Space because of his interest in transcendental meditation and hidden interior realms. Also, there's this, that on the same card, where Mark Frost gave that quote about the author is someone called Lynch Frost, we have uh, Lynch saying, and only this sentence, the thing is about secrets. And no need to explain further. (laughs) At the heart of this modern incarnation of Twin Peaks is both Lynch and Frost's instinct to help people. Mark Frost delivers his interpretation of this message in The Secret History of Twin Peaks and The Final Dossier, working within the framework of a Jungian collective unconscious neural network with a social conscious focus on light and darkness. Summarized well by this tweet of his, Hey, all my Peaks friends out there, make sure your voices are heard tomorrow. Despair and indifference are dead ends, and democracy is an idea that dies in disbelief. Honor the light, deny the darkness, vote. David Lynch delivers his interpretation within Season 3 by showing aspects of a meditation state dissolving the proverbial suffocating clown suit of negativity made from anger, depression, and sorrow, which he explains well in Catching the Big Fish. Both men show an instinct to help their fellow human beings. And their work here shows that they think humanity is best served during the time we're given by striving for enlightenment and living in the present and embracing the light and using your energy in a positive way. Both men have different interpretations of how their message should be delivered, but at the base foundation behind season three script, is the message of this alchemic enlightenment and evolution. And then I have three circles. The largest circle is season three script. And then there are two slightly smaller circles where one is blue, titled Frost Interpretation, where we have Secret History of Twin Peaks and Final Dossier. And the other circle is red, titled Lynch Interpretation, and it has season three inside. And all three circles cover each other, where there are some things that the book and season three have in common that probably season three script doesn't. Uh, There's parts where um, um, the Frost interpretation overlaps the season three script. There's parts where the Lynch interpretation overlaps the season three script. And then there's one point in the center where all three circles are are overlapping each other and this spot in the center that forms a sort of a a triangle that is the stuff that i am on a hunt for the path to get to this evolution is their own interpretation like themselves neither interpretation is more positive or negative than the other 
Like the material and non-material universes, Frost and Lynch's interpretations are interconnected at a foundational level and unlock better understanding of the other. T. Kyle King of Rapton Podcast has an interesting angle on this. With respect to the past, Lynch has a strong sense of nostalgia, whereas Frost has a strong sense of history. Lynch relates to the past emotionally, while Frost reacts to the past intellectually. For Lynch, the greater sin with respect to the past is to get so lost in the romanticized past that it blinds us to the opportunities available in the present. To Frost, by contrast, the greater sin with respect to the past is to lose awareness of it to a degree that causes us to make impractical decisions that lead us down ill-considered roads as the result of our ignorance. The interplay of these countervailing forces of emotion and intellect, nostalgia and knowledge, and past and present, is reflected in your theory and is shot, th- <clears throat> and is shot through the return, and nowhere more so than in Part 8, particularly in the juxtaposition of Sarah Palmer in an iconic moment of Americana, a boy and a girl in a black and white scene from the 50s, with the Bob Frog bug unleashed by the atomic bomb crawling into her mouth. As a viewer, you may be more tuned to Lynch's point of view, or you may be more tuned to Frost, but it's up to you to decide where on the spectrum you fall. Personally, I try to fall right in the middle, which is probably why this Twin Peaks theory is being told from a point in the middle of the material and non-material universes. So we have the season three script, and on Frost's side, we have the secret history of Twin Peaks and Final Dossier. We've got conspiracy, aliens, politics, and worldly concerns, and I put multiple timelines over there. On Lynch's side, we have season three. I've got transcendental meditation, painting, interiority, and then I've got dreams opposed to the multiple timelines. And kind of in the center, where people are kind of getting mixed up by theories and, um, you know, being able to come up with ones that work very well, I have, just underneath the season three script, I have a dream of multiple timelines. I've just explained why I conceptually believe in a state of reality that is stuck between the timeline and launch space. My Twin Peaks theory will now delve into examples that help to explain how this in-between reality is represented in Season 3. First, we have characters in between. Frank Truman. When you see Frank, you know you're seeing scenes set in the in-between state of reality. I said earlier that Frank Truman signifies the intruding presence of Margaret's dream while also still being attached to the timeline, because he only has one foot in the dream. His other foot is in the timeline. In parts one through three, Frank is not present. I believe these parts are mostly in tune with the timeline. Frank also is not present in the second half of part 17 or any of part 18. I consider those to be mostly in tune with Lodge Space. Frank Truman only exists between those points in the undecided middle. He neutrally reacts to both Wally Brando, full of positive energy and love for his parents, and Doris Truman, 
full of negative energy and trauma over their son's suicide. Per final dossier, he is the acting sheriff for a set period of two years between Harry's stepping down and Hawk's taking of the mantle. Does not actively shoot Doppel Cooper, though his hat takes a cartoonish hit from the bullet in a dreamlike way. Acknowledges in part seven that Laura Palmer was killed as he goes through the discovered diary pages with Hawk. Works in both the modern section of the sheriff's station, where Maggie's 911 dispatch station is located, and the older one, where Andy, Lucy, and Hawk go through files and discuss eating evidence. He constantly references fish symbolically referencing Pete Martell fishing because Laura is missing. In part one, Lucy says he's fishing. In part seven, he and Will Hayward make fishing jokes over Skype. In part 15, in a dark conference room, he was looking at pictures of fish when Hawk came in to announce that the log lady had died. With the fish references are also signposts of Lodge Space's dream asserting itself into this middle state of reality. I'm going to stick to the state of in-between for a while. Other characters. Hawk is between being a deputy and a sheriff. The log lady is at the precipice between life and death. Andy and Lucy are also stuck in-between in their way. As I explained in detail here, Lucy and Andy were released by Wally Brando from the past when he gave them permission to turn his kept childhood bedroom into a study more suited to their modern needs. Their arc within Season 3 transitions from the past to the present, but is mostly between these states until Lucy decides to understand cell phone. Gordon Cole, Albert Rosenfield, and Tamara Tammy Preston patrol the cases that have equal roots in both the material timeline and non-material lodge space. Bobby Briggs patrols the border between Twin Peaks and Canada. Every character in this show is on some sort of precipice, which I will return to at a later time, but as for now, I think you get the idea. Locations in between. All of the hotels and motels are places where people go when they need a place to stay when they're between times of being at home. This includes the Great Northern with the hum in its boiler room. The Double R and Roadhouse are places where you go to eat and live between the time when you're at home. The Dutchman's is in a literal state between being material and non-material. The Palmer House is material, but its residents appear to be both from the material and the non-material. Stairways, and also ladders, if you include the case file illustration that make Bushnell Mullins con connect uh, LVPD and Lucky Seven people together in corruption, are an actual location themselves, and it appears that the stairway in the Dutchman's takes you from the material, ground floor, to the non-material, second floor. Not to mention Sarah's room in New Mexico, per final dossier and Laura's room in Twin Peaks are on the second floor, connected by stairs. That purple zone with NATO and American Girl, themselves possibly in between states of Laura and Diane while their tulpas exist ne <clears throat> nearest the time stream, or under some form of lodge-style witness protection, was between Dale's time in the lodge and his time in Vegas. 
The farm where the arm wrestling occurred was described by Ray Monroe as something like a halfway house for released prisoners reintegrating into civilian society. The Frost-described three-year-old ghost towns of Las Vegas are where Cooper entered the world between his time in the non-material and his time in the Jones home as Dougie. The houses themselves are between being built and having residence. Trailers like Fat Trout Trailer Park, as well as Dr. Jacoby's trailer on Whitetail Mountain, are neither moving vehicles or houses, but can be used as either. And the Roadhouse, where we see characters' behaviors and audiovisual cues associated with worldly scenes and lodge space scenes. Junction Points All of these in-between locations operate as junction points, just like the Season 3 script is a junction point between Lynch and Frost interpretations. Just like the Waiting Room and the Fireman's Lair are also junction points. David Lynch regularly goes out of his way to say in various ways he's never shown the Lodge on film. In this Rolling Stone interview, Corey Groh asks Lynch what feeling he gets when on the set of the Black Lodge, and Lynch responds with this. I call it the Red Room, and the Red Room is a sort of junction point. It can be a very good feeling, and it can be not so good. Frost, in the final dossier, alludes to the fireman's lair being a junction point when he says Cooper's double is looking for the coordinates so that he could locate a Grand Central Station of junction points. You can't see this in action in Part 17 when, or you can see this in action in Part 17 when the fireman captures Doppelcooper, swipes away the image of the Part 12 Palmer house, bringing up the sheriff's station instead, and then that is where we see next where Coop, where Doppelcooper appears. You can also say that the entirety of Season 3 is a junction point for each character as they choose between positive and negative fre <clears throat> frequency and energy, which I've alluded to already and will explore in depth later. Right now, I will say that Season 3 operates as a portal for them, where they can go out into the positive or negative, depending which way they want to walk through the portal, or, if you prefer, threshold. Depending on which way you walk on the stairs declares which floor you end up on, and depending on which way you look into a mirror declares what you see as a reflection on the other side. What I mean to say is, Lynch loves his imagery to explore interior states. We've seen it in the original series, especially with mirrors. Josie's face is shown in the mirror first thing. Her secrets and darkness is reflected to us without us knowing what we're seeing. Later, we see Bob looking back at both Leland Palmer and Dale Cooper. Used to be, you could see right through to the non-material through the mirror, like it were a portal. Now, when the story sprung up from the Season 3 script, it's as if we're on the mirror itself, and depending on which way your energy is tuned, <clears throat> proves which state of reality you look out onto. The mirror is the junction point between image and reflection, and depending on which way the mirror looks, you will see the image or you will see the reflection. One is the official version, the other is the unofficial version and the mirror is a portal to both. We are on the mirror itself.
I choose the mirror as the most apt comparison slash metaphor for season three's shape because of its historical use, Bob able to be seen in mirrors, as well as the blatant reversals in modern Twin Peaks material from the original Twin Peaks material. When you put together images within season three, along with the number of blatantly reversed events within Secret History of Twin Peaks and the final dossier, you'll see what I mean when I write, look one way and you're seeing the timeline and look the other way and you'll see lodge space. In Frost Twin Peaks novels, we get these exact reversals. In season two, we learn Norma cheats on Ed with Hank, and that sends Ed to marry Nadine almost right away. In Secret History of Twin Peaks, we learn that Ed went to Vietnam, and it was Hank actively intercepting Ed's letters that caused Hank and Norma to marry first, with Ed marrying Nadine at a later point. In Season 1, we learn Bobby is cheating on Laura with Shelley Johnson. In Final Dossier, we learn that Bobby is cheating on Shelley with Laura. In Season 2, Ben Horn leaves a Civil War delusion by winning the war for the South. In Secret History of Twin Peaks, Jacoby guides him to let the North win the war to leave the delusion. In Episode 29, Ben Horn hits his head on the Hayward's fireplace before the bank explosion. In Final Dossier, the bank explosion happens before Ben's injury. Considered opposites in pop culture, Pete Martell plays chess in the timeline and checkers in the in-between of Secret History of Twin Peaks. In the Access Guide to Twin Peaks, we learn that the Martells arrived first to Twin Peaks, followed by the Packards. In Secret History of Twin Peaks, the Packards arrive first, followed by the Martells. Also in the Access Guide, the Twin Peaks High football team, Steeplejacks, has a perfect season thanks to a final play featuring Hawk. In Secret History of Twin Peaks, the team, Lumberjacks, suffered a defeat in the championship game thanks to Hank Jennings throwing the game on purpose on the final play. In both of Frost's books, Margaret Lannerman's last name is changed to Coulson. It is a tribute to Catherine Coulson, but it is also a reflection from the Log Lady's role in the original series to her altered form in the in-between state. As we only hear Margaret contacting Hawk over the phone, I contest that the Margaret Lanterman from Season 3 is calling in to the in-between from the timeline. And let's not forget about the Bookhouse Library page in Secret History of Twin Peaks. Aaron Mento described how only the one or the I, eight and eleven or II were the same exact image with its original or when reflected in the mirror. And the first words of those books said, Fear the double. If this isn't literally making a case for what I'm trying to explain here, nothing is. In season three, we get these exact reversals. In Firewalk with Me, we get Philip Jeffries saying, Who do you think? This is he, <clears throat> this is there. It's more immediate. Feels more like he'd refer to a person that way. In season three, there's alternate footage on the same scene with the altered dialogue. Who do you think that is there? Seems more removed to say that, removing a little humanity as well. As I would think that would refer to more of a thing than a person. Also, this implies something right next to me, or even in my hand. That implies a bit of a disconnect. 
It's a tonal feeling, but it's there. Either way, though, it's not a precise reproduction and therefore seems more akin to a reflection rather than an original image. In part 13, Ed is eating soup in the final credits, seemingly terribly depressed and or lonely. This is a sure sign that he's tuning more toward Lodge Space at the time, and the part of him reflected in the window glass that's slightly out of sync with him is tuned more toward the middle state. Or it's his more Lodge Space-tuned reflection, and he's in the middle state. Either way, neither seen parts are closest to the timeline. In part two, Shelley says, James has always been cool. I also think things like backwards blinking are signs in season three of seeing things to, uh, through to either timeline or lodge space. I'm thinking specifically of Sonny Jim in the back seat with Cooper nested inside Dougie Jones shedding a tear as to what he could have had if he was part of the timeline. Therefore, Sonny Jim blinking backwards is that moment tuned to the timeline. Backward speech and even the 119 mom are all reversal lodge space signs being observed from the in-between. Gordon Cole, likely while tuned to the an unofficial version, lodge space, regularly says, apologies in advance for Albert, immediately after Albert says something offensive. The way a woodsman kills Bill Hastings is remembered backwards by Diane as she and the agents and officers recount events they can only remember after they've been drinking coffee. She says about the described woodsman, I think I saw somebody like that getting out of the police car, but earlier Diane is only clearly shown watching a woodsman go into the police car. Find Laura can and probably does mean a number of things, but the root issue of season three is choosing between what is and is not. And I've already said that Laura's time stream is and Carrie's lodge space is not. As Leland went into the light in episode 16 of the timeline tied season two, Leland is probably making an appearance from another state, much as the fireman appears in the waiting room in episode 29. Leland is possibly warning Dale to tune to the timeline rather than to Lodge Space that is throwing everything out of balance. The first time Leland is in the waiting room telling this to Dale Cooper, Dale is in an in-between state, and he's mostly tuned toward the timeline. Therefore, he comes from one side of the screen. The second time Leland is in the waiting room, Dale is coming from a time when he's already saved, quote-unquote, Laura, from her death and is therefore tuned to the Lodge Space dream where Laura did not die. Philip Gerard saying the Fire Walk With Me poem in normal speech rather than backward speech could, be, could also be evidence that Dale has been tuned closer to Lodge Space. He comes from the opposite side of the screen in an exact reversal of the film from the previous time he met Leland. And later, Dale finds Carrie. Moments that suffer, primarily the Part 8 stuttering woodsman scenes, the Part 17 clock in the sheriff's station, and Frank and the deputies superimposing in Part 14, seem to be, an oscillating, seem to be oscillating quickly between timeline tuning and lodge space tuning due to their proximity to portals. 
the portal, you, uh, the closer you are to a portal, the closer you are to a doorway between those two dimensions. And I suspect you'll be able to see all your options most clearly then, as if your frequencies are present all at once, like an orchestra, rather than a solo instrument. But remember, if you can see these other realities, they can see you too. No scene in Twin Peaks Season 3 is ever cut and dry, whether it is set in the material reality or lodge space. The Twin Peaks, or this Twin Peaks theory will explain how both the timeline and lodge space could be simultaneously tethering onto this in-between state of reality, fortifying both its shape and its solidity. How Lodge Space Asserts Itself Into the In-Between Reality Besides the reversed polarity of Dale and his doppelganger, there are a number of ways Lodge Space and the timeline adhere to this in-between state to make it a more solid construction. Here are some of them. Glitches. Doppelcooper, made of pure Lodge Space, has his agents on Earth. Some of them are killed on screen, and there are glitches at the moment of their deaths. Philip Hastings, Warden Murphy, Duncan Todd, and Roger. The direct connection and influence of Doppelcooper was disconnected from their bodies as their life force was no longer part of the energy cycle, and only their bodies remain. The same glitch happens to the doorknob of Gordon Cole's room in Buckhorn as Tammy arrives there in Part 10. What happened right before it? A vision of Laura from Fire Walk With Me flowed through that doorway like a river. It was likely a temporary influence from Dale's 1989 dream that disconnected as Albert arrived. Why did Cole receive that vision? He was free-drawing, in tune with more than most people with dreams, and therefore with lodge space. Fog. In addition to the glitch at Gordon Cole's door, the vision also left the scene in a fog. Per Tamara Preston's report in the final dossier, she asks what questions of people regarding the validity of Laura Palmer disappearing rather than being murdered. And the quote is, They all got slightly dazed and confused expression on their faces when I brought it up, as if they were lost in a fog, having trouble recalling, unable to fully wrap their minds around something that happened so very long ago. Until they, until finally they said, each and every one of them, yeah, that sounds right, that's how I remember it. And later on, Preston explains her own thoughts, possibly retuning. Chief, I'm glad I've written all this down rapidly, because my own thoughts about every one of these events are growing fuzzier and more indistinct the longer I stay here creeping into my mind like a mist. Sounds like tuning from the in-between reality in a lodge space, as far as I'm concerned. The unofficial version. Jeffries is untethered enough from time to know that the unofficial version likely comes from lodge space, and that Gordon Cole is in the middle enough where he's able to tune to lodge space at least as often as the timeline. How do we see Gordon tuned to the unofficial version besides his odd reindeer drawing? He's there at the end with Diane and Cooper. Dale Cooper wants him there at the end of the timeline before he goes all in with changing events. The Judy retcon. 
Out of nowhere, blatantly disregarding both subtlety and continuity, Gordon explains a plan to find an entity of negative energy known as Zhao Day. And this happens near the end, after the frequency of Lodge Space, an unofficial version, seems to be well asserted into the story, despite Dale having yet to travel back in Lodge Space time to save Laura. When Tammy is inducted into the Blue Rose Task Force, there's a room with red curtains, and Diane says, let's rock. If they're not privy to Lodge Space adjacent tuning, there's no way to explain that coincidence. Lynch uses his symbols as language, not inconsistently. I think, as that's part 12, right around when Sarah Palmer starts to break down in the grocery store, this scene is a sign of Lodge Space asserting itself. Albert, Albert, Albert. In a scene made entirely of blue tones, my code color for timeline, Gordon Cole deliberately and slowly says Albert three times while a strange hum fills the air, as if tuning from the timeline into a completely different frequency. While the color doesn't change, it appears they reach a different state, the in-between state from the timeline. As they decide, the Tulpa version of Diane is part of their shared experience. I'm really worried about you. Another Albert connection. Albert seems connected to the timeline most. Gordon retunes him in that just-mentioned blue-hued scene by saying his name repeatedly and slowly over the strange hum. Albert has a happy dinner date with Constance Talbot and he doesn't seem to catch on to any clues from Gordon's lil-like Frenchwoman. He regularly needs help from Gordon tuning to the middle. When Gordon says, I'm really worried about you, Gordon may know that his agent, tuned mostly to the timeline, is only in the middle zone because, like Margaret Coulson, Will Hayward, and Harry Truman, he's near to death. And with that logic, it's quite possible that the fog cleared from the Part 10 Laura vision because Albert was closer to the timeline and pushed the dream away. Visual recognition and object permanence. It seems that any number of non-material things from Lodge Space need to be visually recognized in order to become fixed in reality. This probably goes back to fairy magic, where you can get fairy and leprechaun magic to work for you, but you have to keep an eye on them the whole time or they'll disappear along with their magic. If you look away from them for even a moment, as Rosie says on the Shadow Trap podcast, they turn into a rock. So too do Lodge Space things fade away, as if they were just a dream all along, if not properly acknowledged by the material universe. Doppelcooper. The doppelganger himself possibly needed to be captured on film for his solidity. First, when a man near the glass box, or with a man near the glass box, and another time in one of his palaces in South, a in South America. The Owl Ring. It was able to be used as a key near portals when covered, but it became real and a portal all of its own when, per secret history of Twin Peaks, it was removed from its pouch after Meriwether Lewis was killed and it was stolen from him. The Glass Box. Sam needed to be there the whole time to visually verify things that came through it. Sam was not there for Dale Cooper's pass-through, so Dale continued on. Sam with Tracy was there for the experiment model, 
and it broke through and ate him as real as any earthly predator. Coordinates. Ray Monroe says in part 15 that Jeffries told him not to write down the coordinates. Per final dossier, Hastings indicated that Briggs had cautioned them to put nothing on paper. In part 15, Doppelcooper takes out a pad of paper and a pen to write down every single coordinate Philip Jeffries reveals in his smoke. Dougie's Wedding Band I explored many avenues of why Major Briggs had Dougie's wedding band in his stomach, but it could be as simple as this. Dougie Jones needed to be anchored to the timeline by those who knew Dale Cooper. This could be what was needed to anchor Dale to the in-between reality, even though he completely believed that he could not be on Earth until his doppelganger switched places with him. Did they ask about Vegas yet? Could be Doppelcooper asking if they've anchored Dale to the in-between reality yet, and therefore Doppelcooper knows he still has time before he has to meet Dale. Diane. In part 18, during the most awkward sex scene of all time, Diane covers Dale's eyes as if to unanchor herself from the large space adjacent frequency, which, among other things, I explain in depth in Why Diane and Laura Are the Heroes of Twin Peaks. It is in our house now. In a variation of visual recognition, it's possible it is in our house now could mean that the dream, large space frequency, was asserting dominance over the in-between reality, and the fireman was giving Dale clues so that he could break out of his lodge loops and undo the lodge space frequency before lodge space fully asserted itself over the timeline. In order to not anchor it even further, the fireman could not give a proper name or refer to it as anything, because that would attach it even more than it already dangerously was. The glitch, as Dale disappears at the end of that scene, by the way, is different than any other glitch besides the one where Laura Palmer's body is overwritten from that of the timeline. What I see this glitch as is this. The POV is likely from within Lodge Space territory, and the glitch connotes something leaving Lodge Space for frequencies closer to the timeline. T. Kyle King also asks, could this also explain why the fireman shows scenes to Andy in what also appears to be a crucial scene affecting this theory on a porthole above Andy's head? In part 8 and in part 17, we see that the fireman is watching events on a large screen directly before him in his clear line of sight. But what he shows Andy, he shows in a place and in a way that only Andy can see. So the fireman cannot even accidentally gaze upon what Andy is being shown. Could this relate to Doppelcooper being anchored by images of himself? I like the way Kyle thinks. Maybe the fireman can't look at it because of Doppelcooper's presence or because of other frequencies in, that, in any capacity in that vision. There's plausibility for this with references of multiples, the number six pole, for example that could be visual confirmation of up to three different realities in play. This sort of thinking can also apply to Hawk telling Frank, you don't ever want to know about that, when asked about what the black wing dot symbol means, and really about why no one ever wants to talk about Judy. 
the fact that you have to name ultimate negative energy something else entirely implies just saying it out loud can attach it to people's worldview. This can apply to the Monica Bellucci dream, too. Once Gordon speaks of it, suddenly Albert can remember it all well. I don't have all the subtleties down, but there's definitely something to this line of thought. How the timeline reasserts itself to the in-between reality. Twin Peaks music from seasons one and two and Firewalk With Me. We hear Dark Mood Woods when Hawk is going to the Red Curtains in part two and he's still tuned completely to the timeline. We hear Laura Palmer's theme as Andy has his failed meeting with the farmer in part seven. These are where the timeline is being overwritten by the in-between reality, but then in part four, there's when Bobby sees Laura's homecoming photo and begins crying while Laura Palmer's theme plays. I've previously credited this moment as the truth being remembered in how the fireman brings back some memories. And here, the truth being remembered is tuning to the frequency of the timeline rather than the in-between. Audrey almost breaks out of her lodge-adjacent state as Audrey's dance, which is verbally named in the show, plays. But then she relapses back into Lodge adjacency and the song plays backwards over the credits in a blatant reversal or take back. And let's not forget James singing at the Roadhouse just to remind us how things used to be. Through a lifting fog, Twin Peaks theme plays every week along with Laura's photo image. But then we enter the Lodge by the end of the opening credits as the music fades away. The most timeline-asserting moment happens with the Part 16 reemergence of Dale Cooper after weeks of only Dougie Jones. The Take Charge Charmer, we all know, is awake, and we hear the longest version of the Twin Peaks theme we've heard in a while. He takes it back later, just like Audrey does, but we almost had a breakthrough there. Phone Calls Will Hayward, Harry Truman, and Margaret Coulson all call characters during the course of the show. They are between life and death, and in between state all by itself. So that's perhaps how they entered the in-between state, but the phone lines are part of that equation as well. There are also the curious case of Ray Monroe. There's also the curious case that Ray Monroe only spoke to Philip Jeffries over the phone, traversing frequencies and probably from the in-between reality to either Lodge Space frequency or Lodge Space itself. Another phone call that may go from one state to another is Bushnell Mullins to Gordon Cole in Part 16. As Dale is tuned closely to the timeline at that moment, and Gordon Cole was tuned mostly toward the, the Judy retcon, unofficial version. It's quite possible they needed, to phone, they needed the phone to communicate just as much as Doppelcooper needed the phone to return to the in-between state of reality from Lodge Space location of the Dutchman's when he met with Philip Jeffries in Part 15. I'd also posit a guess the ringing phone in Carrie's Odessa house was there to bring Dale or Carrie from the Lodge Space frequency back to the middle frequency of the in-between reality. Though I freely admit this one is pure speculation. And then there's the curiosity of Doppelcooper's cell phone usage. Why does he collect so many phones? 
Could it be because he needs them to access Lodge Logic, where which looks to the material world like magic? Does each phone serve as a short-range retuner so that Lodge Space influences his reality the way he wants it to? That's my hypothesis. Pie and coffee. Margaret invites Hawk over for pie and coffee, but he chooses to stay in the in-between state. Coffee is present during leaps of intuition or revelation, per usual, though coffee, perhaps just like the timeline itself, is nowhere near as present as it used to be. Cooper as Dougie brings a pie to the Mitchums, and it changes their tune from dark thugs to generous hearts of gold. Over the phone, Shelley invites Becky to the double R for pie, and Becky accepts. The Great Northern Key. It comes from the pocket of Dougie Jones from Lodge Space, but it seems the key is a remnant of the timeline and is possibly a symbol of Dale disconnecting from the timeline, only to reconnect to it at the end when he begins his reconnection with his shadow known as Doppelcooper. Jade gets the first key and sends it through the mail after helping Cooper as Dougie, then presumably leaving for the timeline. Then it goes through the mail and enters, and to Ben Horn, who remembers events associated with it. And when Ben hands the key to Frank Truman, he says, for Harry, which is another nod to remember the timeline. Soil. The note within Major Briggs's message the note within Major Briggs's message pod asks Frank and the deputies to put soil in their pockets. I assume it's so they can tune to the correct state, their current in-between frequency, when the vortex closes. The soil grounds then, in particular, in their particular reality state, much like Albert grabbing Gordon's shoulder, anchored coal at the Buckhorn Vortex site. Signposts for which frequency we're experiencing. People. For the timeline, we have the mention of Harry Truman and Margaret Lanterman slash Coulson. We also have the homecoming photo, which I explained at length in how the fireman brings back some memories, and a trigger to remember Laura and the fact that she died. For in-between reality, we have Frank Truman. For the Lodge Space Frequency, we have the mention of Billy, which I will go into later on. Lucy's Timepieces Kylie Carr of the Between Two Worlds Facebook group mentioned Lucy wore a single timepiece as a necklace up through Part 7, and then afterwards she wore two timepieces as necklaces, up through Part 17. Kylie thought the findings of her excellent work were a solid marker for keeping track of timelines, but it works just as well for keeping track of which frequency the show is currently tuned to. What does this mean to me? When Lucy's stuck in the past, she is frozen in place and tuned to the timeline frequency because it is associated with the past she remembers. When the lodge space frequency begins to assert itself over the t over the in-between reality, her two timepieces show that she's stuck in the middle. In part 17, when she literally shoots the source of actual lodge-based darkness, Doppelcooper, she is wearing a single timepiece again, 
signifying she's back to the timeline frequency, but this time because she actually chose the frequency rather than being frozen there. How does this show something besides her inner internal changes? From that point forward in Part 17, Lodge Space and Timeline begin to separate once more. It's possible to see this as the Lodge Space dream winning. But it wasn't Dale who ended as Doppelganger's time, it was Lucy and the representatives of the, pine, of the Timeline, like Freddy, who did it while Dale stood there. They push back against the darkness, forcibly and literally. This is why I think Lodge Space Frequency appears so different from the others. It's been pushed out on its own. And because the camera POV is following Cooper, we don't see much more of the timeline then. But as I've said before, the timeline is still there all the time. Memory Everything I ever said in Fireman brings back some memories about the Golden Orb and Laura Homecoming picture triggering memories of the truth is still accurate within this theory. Making someone remember the truth that Laura died felt emotionally true and explains the what that happens. And I feel this exploration of tuning between the coexisting lodge-adjacent frequencies and the timeline can actually explain the how of it. Remembering Laura's presence that is missing from their perception retunes characters from the in-between reality to the timeline. The presence of the symbol of Laura's death, that, uh, that's what that picture means to all of us who ever watched a show years ago, makes people find Laura. Though, like all the others stuttering time, I believe there are oscillations in play. There is turning back and forth in Season 3 between events closer to the timeline and those to more tuned to Lodge Space. Just like Dale coming back in his most close-to-timeline way in Part 16, right before he dives headlong into Lodge Space's dream logic. Just like a clock that moves back and forth between 2.52 and 2.53, and just like that arm wrestling scene goes back to starting positions. Every character's struggle in Season 3 is an oscillation between these frequencies, and every instance of remembering means you're tuning from a point of view directed to timeline or from lodge space. As you retune, you remember things in this new loop that you're fr that you're freshly experiencing, much like how the Part 8 flashback is being introduced or remembered right after whatever the Woodsman did to Doppelcooper and the music right incited by the Nine Inch Nails. But why is this happening? How do all these characters and locations exist in this in-between state? As Dale Cooper created the Lodge Space dream that is flowing at the time like at the timeline like a river, I believe he is also the cause of the in-between state of reality in the first place. Dale Cooper is the reason for the shape of the in-between reality. Season 3 is oftentimes described as Dale's internal process of finding himself, reassembling himself in a Jungian way that I believe Frost intends. But how does that explain all the other characters caught up in Season 3? This Twin Peaks theory 
supposes Dale Cooper tied the timeline and everyone else in said timeline and Lodge Space together when he entered the waiting room in episode 29 and switched places with his doppelganger. Doppelcooper is made of pure non-material, and Dale is made of pure material. So there is now a tether to the timeline within Lodge Space, and there is a tether to Lodge Space firmly embedded in the timeline. They shoelaced both states of reality together with their ties to their home states. The polarities of Dale Cooper have flipped, and Dale, as he exhibits in Part 17 and 18, is acting like he's as powerful as, and probably has become, a magician. Therefore, much as Lynch's dreamer concept, Dale's formed a state of lucid dream, where, as Mike Wilson from the Drink Full and Descend podcast defined it, things appear to be exactly half in the waking world and half in the dream. Because Dale is the one who's reversed polarities, this pull-together reality is shaped to his order. So in blue, we have a wake for the world. It's tethered by a green line to the purple lucid dream in the center. And then on the other side, tied by a green line to lucid dream, is dream in red. Or, and then I have the blue timeline and the red lodge space line parallel, but then they're pulled together at the time of the bomb in part eight. And then those lines go back to being a little bit closer together, but still polarities on either side. And then they come down in the shape of a triangle to the point where Cooper entered the lodge. And then there's a picture of Laura Palmer dying right before that happens. And then for this is season three, at that point of vortex where Dale enters the lodge, there's a circle. And on the exact opposite end of the circle is where Dale leaves lodge in another vortex. But at that point where there's a circle, we have a blue, a blue side of the circle and a red side of the circle. And then there's a purple state of the circle that is the, it's basically taken from part three, where Cooper enters that purpley, cloudy space. And that's kind of where I see the setting of season three, where you can look to the left and you can see timeline-related things, and then you look to the right and you see lodge space-influenced things. As a human being from the timeline, Dale experiences his life in chronological order. As he experiences it through time loops within the Lodge, his experience also happens as if there were multiple times over the exact same time period within the time stream. The evidence of multiple timelines comes from this. The evidence of what I've been calling timequakes in secret history comes from this as well except instead of two tectonic plates interacting and causing vibrational shockwaves through time, it appears that Dale Cooper is the specific nexus point of interaction, and all the shockwaves go through and from him. Before I rationalize these multiple timelines, quote-unquote, happening concurrently within the real timeline, I will go through Dale's time loops in, chrono <clears throat> in chronological order from his point of view as if it were all in a straight line, 
because this is how Dale experiences it. So we have the first loop looking like this. Dale enters the lodge, and then he comes across, is it future or is it past? And also Laura whispering to Dale. And honestly, the first loop is loop is bordered by two Laura whispers to Dale's because of that dream he had in part two or in episode two. And then we have the Laura scream where the curtains go and the white horse um, is seen in the darkness along the floor of the red room. And that signifies the beginning of the second loop where we have Philip Gerard again saying, is it future or is it past? And then we get the arm, non-existence, Dougie, all the way through the fork in the socket that wakes him up. And then we get part 17, which goes back to 1989. And we get Julie Cruz singing. And then, you know, 1989 again. And then Laura screams there, ending the second loop. And then the third loop begins again with, is it future or is it past? But then Dale goes through the part 18 sequence. And we get Carrie screaming at the end of that one. And then the fourth loop begins with Laura whispering to Dale in the lodge in the final credits. And then, you know, who knows where it goes from there. As told in a line, we can see how Dale, as a person dealing with trauma, is in a point between understanding and a decision. Another in-between state. I'll include it in two rows for visible purposes, which I just described to you vocally and um in why diane and laura are the heroes of twin peaks i explained a particular choice dale makes near the beginning of season three laura in part one literally says you can go out now but he chooses to wait around for an excuse why he couldn't it's that bob problem he's got to defeat bob first and get the doppelganger back in then he can leave it reminds me of how Audrey couldn't possibly go to the all-important roadhouse, even though her husband said he'd go with her. And she stops going just because he was sleepy. If Dale really wanted to leave the lodge, he could have gone out when Laura said he could leave. Instead, he chose to believe Gerard and the Bob excuse, because that suited his wants better. Dale does not go out when Laura slash Carrie says he can go out now because he is not ready. Instead, he meanders his way into an in-between state as Dougie. I will explain later how Dale's state of mind personifies his particular time loops, but first let's establish what they are. During Dale's lodge stay, two events happen three times each. And they are out of sync with each other. We have three, is it future or is it past? And we have three, Laura whispers to Dale. These are when loop points happen. I'll get back to the Laura whispers, as I think they point to a hopeful conclusion that is tuned more with the timeline, as he first received the whisper when he was completely attached to the timeline. But I think Dale had, to had a choice to choose love or fear during part two. He could choose to believe Laura when she told him, you can go out now. Or he could follow the path as he tries to answer, is a future or is a past? How to put it more plainly? Dale has a choice. 
leave the lodge, as Laura suggests, or go further into the curtains as Phil motions him over that way. He chooses to go into the curtains, literally deeper into lodge space. Here I will break down the time loops into definitions so you know exactly what I'm referring to when I use loop numbers. First loop, timeline adjacent frequency, but the one that interrupts the natural timeline events, such as Hawk Knot meeting Dale as the lodge curtains in part two. This is also where Doppelcooper makes the glass box and amasses his criminal empire and wealth while Dale is in the waiting room. Second loop. The in-between reality. This begins with Dale leaving through non-existence, then living as Dougie Jones, and ends in all the superhero stuff at the, at the sheriff's station. This is the only loop that specifically mentions Judy, Freddy, an unofficial version, or any plan between Briggs, Cooper, and Cole. It's also the only loop that includes Sarah Palmer as a possessed woman, experiment model, experiment, or the fireman, and Dido sending a Laura orb into the world through the junction point. Third loop. The Lodge Space Adjacent Frequency. This is a dark world where very few people are. As far as I'm concerned, this is the dream Margaret warns Hawk about, and this is the one where Laura Palmer is Carrie Page and Diane somehow becomes Linda as she likely detaches from the dream midway through. This is Dale's hubris run amok, and he ignores the fact of genuine history. And there is a fourth loop as well. It only just begins in the credits to part 18. It could count, or it could be a full reset, because it begins with a whisper from Laura rather than is it future or is it past. But we may never know because it begins in the ending moments and is currently unfinished. More on the fourth loop later. And here is another visual representation of how I believe the four loops are stacked onto the timeline. So we have the point where the... Uh, you know, Cooper enters the lodge, and now we have a circle, and timeline and lodge space line the edge of this circle. And um, on the left side in blue, we have first loop. In the, in the middle point where the purple fog is, we have second loop, and then we have third loop on the right side of the circle. But they're all right next to each other. And you can see how linearly Cooper would would just go straight across from the left side to the right side. And then the fourth loop is down at the bottom where the, um, where the circle is done and he's, he's um, beyond it. The second loop is the one in the middle, the POV location of season three. If you look with the intention of positive energy to the timeline, you are tuned to see the events close to how they went in the first loop. If you look with the intention of negative energy to Lodge Space, you've tuned to see events close to how they go in the third loop. Because the loops happen in order for Dale, we feel the time loops assert themselves in that order within season three. That's why people like Jerry Horn feel like they've been here before, too. We see the original timeline and first loop superseded by the second loop, Instead of Hawk meeting Dale when he sees the red curtains in part two, 
Dale overwrites the perceived timeline by beginning the superhero arc that contains the Judy plan and Freddy versus Bob. Hawk never once mentions the curtain scene because he's tuned to the second loop now. In part 10, Margaret speaks to Hawk about the dream asserting itself too, which I say is a visual confirmation of the third loop superseding the second loop. Though that started in part 7 with Andy not having a chance to meet the farmer at Sparkwood in 21, hence the dramatic Laura Palmer theme in that scene. Both loops flowed like a river over what came before, settling into its place as the dominant point of view that we see, dominant because it is Cooper's point of view. The path we are shown in Season 3 tunes and retunes generally to this line, and I have a green line on the outside edge of the timeline that enters the first loop a little bit into it, and then it goes all the way into the second loop, and then it comes, it's a squiggly line back and forth, almost touching the first loop, and then the third loop, and then the first loop, and the third loop, and so on, all the way down, until it finally, in parallel to how it uh, began, um, goes out to the third loop, almost at the edge, and then goes all the way into the out of the circle to follow the large space line to the point where the fourth loop begins and the circle ends. The rest of the circle is still there. Even when you're hip deep in this in-between frequency that we're seeing, the trauma Dale wanted to erase hasn't gone anywhere, and neither has the timeline or Laura's death. Dale's just looking away from it, especially after part 17, you know, at least until the fourth loop. And that dangling fourth loop at the end resonates with the missing diary pages that Hawk and Frank read in part seven. Three pages were found. Three lodge loops are shown in season three. Hawk and Margaret's log were on the same page right before the first loop ended. And Carrie Page is in the third loop. And there's a missing fourth page we know about but cannot read just as there's a fourth loop we know about, but we'll never experience it, as it only exists beyond season three. Dale's not the only one traveling these frequencies. So now that we've explored the shape of reality and Dale's state of mind when he's traveling his lodge loop frequencies, it's time to move on to how other characters can fluctuate across these frequencies towards the timeline or lodge space from within this in-between reality, depending on the frequency of their own states of mind. Twin Peaks Season 3 has taken a lot of flack for not feeling like they're a protagonist, antagonist, or even things they want. At the time, I knew it had to be purposeful, but all the same, I couldn't quite understand it. But over time, I've come to this conclusion. I think season three is all about how characters come to make the decision to break through their trauma and send their energy in a positive direction to the timeline where the truth is that Laura dies or a negative direction, the lodge space where Carrie unrecognizably lives. The option for characters to choose between timeline and lodge space, as I've explained earlier in this Twin Peaks theory, best exemplified by this exchange between Lucy and the insurance salesman in Season 3, Part 1. Salesman, I'd like to see the sheriff. 
Lucy, which one? The salesman. Sheriff Truman isn't here? Lucy. Well, do you know which one? It could make a difference. Salesman. Uh, no, ma'am. Lucy. One is sick, and the other is fishing. What happens to the salesman after these words? He panics and leaves before choosing to speak to either sheriff. He didn't know which one to speak with, so he spoke to neither. His indecision is a microcosm for every character struggle in Season 3. The characters are frozen in place by trauma and or stagnation. And their biggest struggle is to break through the barrier that strands them in their personal and external trauma. Trauma freezes you in place. So does being stuck in a rut. Your energy is not flowing. It's stuck in the middle, not part of the flow that goes between and through the material and non-material states of reality. What I'm calling the timeline and launch space. Scream, break the dam, your energy will flow again. You are no longer stuck between states, you are traveling again. And once your energy begins moving, you can choose how to direct your energy, as best expressed by this dialogue between Hawk and Frank in Part 11. Hawk, the symbol's a type of fire, more like modern-day electricity. Frank, good? Hawk, it depends. It depends on the intention, the intention behind the fire. I still firmly believe what I wrote in the central question of Twin Peaks. When confronted with trauma, do you look away or shovel yourself out? Where I suggested that every character in season three processes their trauma and then immediately leaves the story. And now that I've dissected the reality structure as I have in this Twin Peaks theory, I can finally offer you a plausible reason as to how and why this happens. Most of it involves tuning from the in-between state to either the timeline or lodge space, which to viewers usually looks like someone remembering something. Breakthroughs are a major focus in season three. Every time someone screams, you know someone's broke through their wall and are on their way to waking up. But it takes a lot to get to that moment. It takes a while. Remember how long it took Dale to wake up? Surely, Dougie drinking the coffee will wake up Cooper, right? Surely, sex with Janie E will wake him up. That damn good pie with the Mitchums, right? Everything in season three felt like the perfect trigger to get Dale Cooper back to us, but it wasn't just one of those things. It was all of them added together, adding weight until the veil was pushed back and Dale had no choice but to wake up. We're going to see the characters we remember this week, right? It took way longer in New Twin Peaks than we were expecting before we saw characters we were dying to see again. Read Audrey and Big Ed. And when they did arrive, they were not announced with any major gravitas. They just showed up. We're going to have a breakthrough and energy will start moving in a positive direction now, right? It always takes longer than you think to heal, doesn't it? And you never know you're healed. You never know you actually processed your trauma until you do. And you probably already did it before you realize that you've done it. I will show you here how the characters get to the point of jump-starting their energy and how their breakthroughs allow themselves to see the timeline or lodge space clearly enough that they decide to anchor themselves to one or the other.
rather than the interminable state between belonging to neither. The trauma cycle, how characters were caught between. Trauma freezes energy. It stalls it to a hard stop. Stagnation, the force that puts Norma and Ed into season three, sets in. In terms of the energy flow, as described earlier, it looks like this. And, you know, we have a straight line and then kind of a lightning bolt shape that gets between that and the green energy that just goes around and around in a circle because it can't go forward anymore. A character's energy needs a shock to its system to be restarted. It's what Dale eventually understood when he put that fork in the socket in part 15. He needed to restart his energy flow as part of the system of natural energy that he knew he wanted to be part of again. His cycle looks like this. In blue, we have energy. And a green line connects it, but the green line is trauma, and in parentheses, hard stop. Then in purple, in the middle, we have stalled energy. Then another green line going to the red, we have breakthrough. Energy restarts. And then we just have energy again in red. In, in a more general term, I've broken down the stages each character uses to process their trauma. So in the blue side, we have energy. Then in green, we have point of trauma, energy stopped. Then we have stagnation slash processing in purple. And then in green, we have breakthrough, scream, energy restarts. And then that green, that green breakthrough connects to energy and motion. And then I have an equal sign that goes in diagonally upward, positive direction, or a diagonally downward, negative direction. And then I've matched it up to timeline uh, to the timeline of Cooper's three time loops. Per Cooper's greater arc of processing the trauma he incurred when he entered the lodge, each of his time loops represent a stage of the trauma cycle. So in blue, we have the original Twin Peaks timeline. In green, matched up with trauma, we have Dale enters the lodge. Then that green line connects to the second loop, which is in purple, and then in green, matching up with the breakthrough and the scream, I've got third loop, and then back with energy and motion that's in red on the right, we have fourth loop, and then, you know, the equal sign of either, you know, positive or negative, because the outcome is officially undecided based on what we've seen. Dale's point of trauma in this case is the episode 29 events in the waiting room. The moment that restarts his energy from that point is not the, f <clears throat> is not the fork that was a similar point of understanding. But what year is this? Understanding that he's disconnected from time is a trauma that Jeffries went through and that Dale is now going through. Dale is at a precipice in the final credits. Will he decide at all if he'll use his energy for the positive and re-embrace the timeline and repent for the trauma he caused to the timeline during his loops, much as Ben Horn did in the final dossier, 
for inviting the prison into the Twin Peaks area when he sold his land and now tries to help whenever he can? Or will Dale choose to become a monster in the vein of Philip Jeffries or be like Sarah Palmer, feeling like she must have been a monster and therefore invited a monster inside her retroactively? Will Carrie's scream wake Dale up, finally? Or will he stay in the dark dream like little Denny Craig, who, per Maggie and Part 4, took Sparkle, the bell rang, which was supposed to shock Denny's system awake, and he just never woke up? Last time, I focused mostly on Margaret's words in Part 10 about a dream flowing like a river at her. This time... I'll be focusing on Lucy's words about which Truman, the, the uh, insurance salesman, wants to see, and Hawk's words to Frank about the intention behind the fire, which I equate to the intention of your energy showing you the timeline or lodge space. Travelers and Passengers Margaret Coulson, in Final Dossier, spoke of passengers and travelers, and striving to be a traveler because a traveler embraces and fosters light, both in oneself and in others. I include this, which was from the Final Dossier Deep Dive here on 25YL. Don't be sad. Be happy to have another day to do what needs doing. It implies sadness is an emotional association. that it is an emotion associated with being stuck in place. She goes on to say there is no light without darkness and that we should make peace with that. And whether we see that as a metaphor or, or fact, both tell us that time and light and darkness moves in cycles. We move through them, too, often as passengers, but if our eyes are open, there is much to be learned along the way. A traveler learns much more than a passenger. When darkness comes, a traveler learns to be brave, for they know that the light will return. And on the top, we've got Timeline in blue, Season 3 in purple, and Lodge Space in red on the right. And then I have two green lines coming down, almost like triangle points, between Timeline and Season 3. That goes to light, which is blue. And then from season three to Lodge Space, we have another green triangle-shaped point uh, pointing down to darkness in red. Much as Cooper is going through the stages of trauma or being asleep, everyone in season three is one of the people Margaret speaks of in Final Dossier. Travelers know who they are and are heading for the timeline. Passengers don't take responsibility to know themselves, and they allow darkness to cover them. Their energy remains stagnant when their bell rings. In terms of fitting into the concept of travelers and passengers next to season three concepts, I give you these associations. So in blue, we have light, timeline, awake, life, fix your heart, and wake up. In the green area, we have Travelers and First Loop. In the middle, in purple, we have Undecided, Second Loop, Lucid Dream, Coma, and Asleep slash Coma slash Looped. And then in the second 
uh, green going toward the red, we have passenger and third loop. And in red, we have darkness, lodge space, asleep, death, and die. So that's light, undecided darkness, timeline, second loop, lodge space, awake, lucid dream, asleep, life, coma, death, and then fix your heart and wake up, asleep, coma, slash looped, and death, die. Most people in season three spend time as both travelers and passengers, oscillating between the two outlooks, not unlike that clock in the sheriff department, unable to move backwards to 252, which would be third loop in this metaphor, or forward to 253, which would be focused on the first loop. Spending most of its energy in between them, which is the second loop. We also see this metaphor in the arm wrestling scene. It's more comfortable to go back to starting positions of indecision. Oscillations keep characters spinning in place, stuck in loops, or otherwise unable to break through to win the match or make the clock hands move all the way. How does someone punch the resistance in the face so that you could break through the logjam or negativity holding you in place? By fixing your heart. Sarah Palmer. During the Part 12 grocery store scene, the same soundscape is used that was playing during Philip Jeffrey's original Fire Walk With Me scene, at the exact moment when he realizes that he may be unstuck from time. What is happening to Sarah at the moment? Well, she's realizing that she's being slash has been retuned. And this is what I'd consider her breaking point, which we've established matches really well with Dale's breaking point. She says, Were you here when they first came? Your room seems different, and men are coming. She's talking about turkey jerky looking different. I assume a similar switch happened here as happened in the double R patrons in part seven. And Sarah, so lodge space tuned, she can recognize the change. She could feel the dream coming at her like a river, too. After all, she's one of the gifted and the damned. The wave of lodge space dream that hit in part seven seems like it began changing her before part 12, plausibly during her origin in part eight. Here's more from part 12. I am trying to tell you that you have to watch out. Things can happen. Something happened to me. Something happened to me. I don't feel good. I don't feel good. Sarah, stop. Stop doing this. Stop doing this. Stop doing this. Leave this place. Find the car. Find the car. Get the car key. Get the car. Get the goddamn car key. This repeating of words really stand out typed like this. I know I've called this behavior PTSD before, and I still mean it, but the metaphor associated with repeating phrases leans towards looping, though it could also be that she's oscillating back and forth between loop frequencies. She could be saying the same thing on two different frequencies as she oscillates at her breaking point between loops one and loops three. Tuning. 
She knows that she needs to get away from where she is so she can calm down, but ends up sounding a lot like Audrey's Get Me Out of Here. It makes sense they'd be thematically linked as they both literally gave birth to an actual child made at least in part of Lodge Darkness. Sarah's breaking point does not bring out her strength like it does with Audrey. Sarah is not that kind of fighter. She instead later watches boxers on TV, a passive activity when she could actively be fighting for herself. And during a knockout punch, the TV likely becomes a conduit for experiment model to take her over, as I suggested in coordinates. Another article on 25YL. And the knockout punch was to Sarah falling victim, likely to experiment model. How could she have pushed against the darkness? In the same electricity nexus column, I said Doppelcooper uses the coordinates to find the junction point that will likely take him to the Palmer house in Part 12, which immediately follows the grocery store scene. Instead of Doppelcooper meeting her, this is when Harry meets, this is when Hawk meets Sarah, offers her help, and she refuses it, saying instead how it's a goddamn bad story which matches up with other Lodge Space slash Third Loop tuned folks thinking about the story of the little girl who lived down the lane. Stories are not much different than dreams, and the dream is what Margaret warned Hawk about in Part 10. Hawk was tuned to Second Loop when he visited Sarah in Part 12, and again we see an offer of help that could not move forward unless someone accepted said help. While Sarah was already talking in third loop tuning, whether that sound in the kitchen was experiment model waiting for her or the grocery store bag boy stocking her kitchen with left behind groceries, she was already tuned with negative energy in mind, ready to believe in a story instead of the life that she lived. And hence we have Sarah meet the truck you guy in a bar that belongs about as well as Sarah's new nesting creature. And what sealed Sarah's fate? When did she make her decision to go full Lodge Space? Well, when she tried to destroy the homecoming photo in Part 17. Despite her ability to remember everything from before and after retunings, and whether or not it was possible to do so, she actively chose to destroy the timeline symbol of all timeline symbols from her own house. And if that isn't a definitive decision, I don't know what is. From that moment, we never see her again. We even needed new homeowners to sub in for her in Part 18, even as the house remembers Sarah's voice. She chose the full dream, the darkness, and couldn't come back from the third loop. So her chart is easy because it begins in the second loop in Part 2, but then the next time we see her in Parts 12 through 17, it's in the third loop, and then... Part seven, part 11, she's still in the third loop. And in part 17, there's the breaking point with the homecoming photo, which sends her all over the place to basically loop back around through her behaviors. And then it moves straight into Lodge Space. Lucy. 
Back to the lighter side of things, Lucy's energy restarted at her breaking point, which involved two things from part four. Her scream, when she didn't understand Frank's sudden arrival, and Wally releasing her from maintaining his bedroom in what should have been a study. This is the equivalent of Janie E. getting the money that released her from Dougie's financial debts. In part nine, she and Andy begin to make that study a reality by choosing a chair from a motivation of love. And she even takes time for herself by making sure no one interrupts her on her lunch break. In part 10, she tells Chad about the time when a clock stops, alluding to part 17, when she chooses one and once and for all to intend her energy to the positive when she literally kills a force of darkness in Doppelcooper. This is where Lucy's tuning and her timepiece necklaces fit in. Kylie Carr of Between Two, F Two Worlds Facebook group discovered the timing when she was looking for multiple timelines. Or, yeah, the timing when she was looking for multiple timelines, but it works well in this tuning theory as well. While Lucy's stuck in place, she wears one timepiece. When she begins to move forward in part nine and her energy is beginning to move, she's tuned to the second loop and wearing two timepieces. Then when she shoots Doppelcooper, she's back to wearing one timepiece necklace, signifying that she has returned to being in the first loop, but this time by choice rather than being frozen in place. So in a breakthrough uh, pattern, instead of by episodes, her stagnation processing stage is where she begins in part one. Her breakthrough moment is the part four scream and Wally releasing her, and energy in motion is Andy helps her pick out the chair and self-care for lunch equals positive energy choice, which is killing Doppelcooper. Dale was at the same point as Lucy's part four scream when he, when he stuck a fork in the socket. You can see Dale's energy flowing when he has a lapel pin on, but when his energy is stagnant and stuck in the second loop, there's no lapel pin. After that fork, his next scene is him waking up with lapel pin present. Even if he can't connect the fork and the scream, remember it took Lucy 13 full parts to go from her energy moving to her decision to use it in a positive direction. It seems Dale's got a way to go beyond part 18 while still far away, before he has a true understanding the factor into a proper decision. Until then, there could be any number of ups and downs, energy flowing or not. I don't think he's lost to the darkness at all, no matter how bleak things felt in the end. Donna Hayward in Final Dossier was so entrenched in the darkness she needed a fourth stint in rehab before she turned her life around, but she did, and simplified while studying to be a nurse practitioner. She chose light almost after it was too late, but she did it. If Dale needs a fourth loop that begins in the final credits to properly choose light, then I'll count Donna's situation as a precedent. Becky and Stephen The best explanation of what happens when you tune yourself completely away from the second loop's in-between zone comes from Becky and Stephen, who, in addition to never being seen by us again, literally cannot see each other by the end of season three, despite both still being in the show. Becky's tuned to first loop and Steven's turn to third loop. 
and they can't see each other at all. They're standing next to each other, looking in different directions. Becky, in part five, hides from her problems in Sparkle and hears I Love How You Love Me playing while she is literally a passenger in a car. She tries to believe she has love with Stephen, while Stephen can't get a job and turns Mike Nelson's negative critique into good feedback. In part 10, we see Stephen ready to take a swing at Becky. She's fearful, but not necessarily surprised, and Stephen throws a coffee cup out the window. As I've mentioned in the previous part uh, that coffee is a visual symbol of the timeline, this is Stephen literally throwing that symbol out of the place where he lives, essentially choosing darkness right then and there. In part 11, Becky's breaking point happens with a scream and gunshots into Gersten Hayward's apartment door. This unsticks her energy, and she begins saying no more to Stephen's treatment of her. She also gets help from Bobby when he loans her the money to pay for the damage that she did to the door, and this is the clean break from her trauma's damage that she needs to restart and reset her energy. Meanwhile, Stephen was there down some stairs at a different level altogether, literally and figuratively. In part 13, Stephen's been gone for two days, according to what Becky says to Shelley over the phone. The part 11 call to Shelley before the gunshots could have been a tuning from third loop to second loop, but this call is definitely from the second loop to the first loop, as Becky is well on her way back to the timeline. What seals the deal? Agreeing to go to the double R and have pie with Shelley. The exact invitation, by the way, that could have brought Hawk to the timeline if he'd taken Margaret up on her offer in part two is exactly what Becky chooses for herself with Shelley, and we never see her again. Tune to the positive energy, the timeline. In part 15, we see Steven and Gersten tripping out of their minds, heavily into the third loop tuning that involves nonsense words, and they're literally lost in the woods. They keep talking about animals, as, it's, as is customary with people hooked on Sparkle, and he, cho he chose the darkness, Lodge Space. He chose to look far from the timeline so he doesn't see Becky anymore. He kills himself in season three, but per final dossier, he and Gersten have disappeared, not died. And tell me that doesn't sound like the Laura Palmer retcon in a nutshell. They've been swallowed up by Lodge Space because they became passengers rather than travelers like Becky. Disappeared, just like Sarah Palmer wasn't in her house anymore. You choose the darkness, and you won't be participating in any part of the material universe, even in the dream you've just enveloped. So we start this chart with Becky and Stephen both in the second loop, except Stephen's arrow goes straight into the third loop where he attacks Becky and then straight into lodge space when he can't see Becky and kills himself. Becky follows him with the into the third loop when with the gunshots and her screams, but then her arrows turn around, and then she gets help from Bobby, which puts her back in the second loop, and then in the first loop, she's accepted the pie with Shelly, and then her arrow points straight to the timeline. Diane and Laura.
In How the Fireman Brings Back Some Memories, I made a case for how a tulpa is a physically manifested memory of trauma unable to rest until it processes what happened to its body. In this case, Carrie Page was created upon Laura Palmer's murder, and Diane's tulpa would be created when Diane likely died in the convenience store after Doppelcooper brought her there in the memory she recounted to the Blue Rose Task Force in Part 16. I made the case that the Carrie and Diane tulpas needed to reach a certain understanding before their original selves could go on to their next stage, you know, say, heaven or the like. I still believe this is probably the case, but I could also believe that Dale Cooper could be part of their creation when Laura and Diane were no longer in the picture because he still needed them to play roles in his lodge loops. In this case, they are still plausibly memories of traumatic events, but perhaps their genesis is being sparked by a magician after they've already died. I would also not be shocked if their states as NATO, Diane, and American Girl, Laura, which, though unprovable, I made a case for in Permutations of American Girl, were created to house the true versions of Diane and Laura so that the tulpas could exist. Traditional takes on the tulpa concept need a living identity to create the thought forms. And the women's actual souls would not be attached to the in-between state of reality formed by Dale. Either way, the Purple Zone roommates end up feeling like they're in a witness protection program of the White Lodge, and I apparently can't let go of the concept since I wrote about it in Laura Palmer is the, in the Lodge's witness protection program in a life modeled after Shelley Johnson. Structurally, Laura and Diane's stories are nearly impenetrable, and as I've just proven, you can plausibly go many ways with their plots. But I've already explored how their roles work within the structure of reality that I've described in the five parts of this unified theory. You can find that exploration in Why Diane and Laura Are the Heroes of Twin Peaks. I encourage you to read it if you'd like to know what these women's places in this stacked reality, for instance, what Laura's three screams mean in regards to her breakthrough moment. In short, I describe their actions as protagonist-adjacent as they are actively trying to untie themselves from this dream, at least as of Part 18, so they can return to whatever it is, wherever it is that they really belong. I also suggest that if they are able to remove themselves from Dale's in-between reality state, which I believe they are doing in both active and subconscious ways throughout season three, that maybe no one will be there to anchor Dale Cooper, using sight as a tool of object permanence within the in-between state. If this is true, and Laura and Diane do not tie Dale to the dream by seeing him in it, Dale will then unravel from his lodge loops. And he's removed from his lodge loops, therefore lodge space and timeline will separate properly and fall into balance once more, beginning with Dale's fourth loop. Dale Cooper navigates season three. So this theory has finally arrived at the big questions. Was Dale Cooper following a plan? Did he take away Laura Palmer's agency and or blow up reality as Twin Peaks knows it? Is he dead? 
Every interpretation of these questions' answers seems to hinge on how you view Dale Cooper's decisions to do what he did in parts 17 and 18 of season 3. Two Trauma Cycles From the point of view of Dale within his is-it-future-or-is-it-past loops, he's within this kind of trauma cycle. Dale in original Twin Peaks seasons, with regular energy. His point of trauma is when Bob possesses Dale, or, you know, into his doppelganger. Stagnation processing stage is the 25 years of time in the lodge, and time as Dougie. His breakthrough moment is fork and socket, and his energy in motion is where he decides to do what he does all through part 17. Being possessed would be a most excellent example of a major trauma that stops Dale's energy in place. You can see him being in a state of hibernation in the waiting room. You can see his Dougie version as a pure receptacle of stalled energy. You can see Dale's energy starting up again when he stuck that fork in the socket, complete with Janie E's not understanding scream in the room, then becoming himself in part 16 before he takes the path of constantly helping people, however suspect his methods may appear. You can really see him trying to be a golden shovel for people, from Diane to the Judy's Diner waitress to Carrie Page. Except through it all, he's cold, fairly heartless, and lacking intuition as he does it. All of us fans agree in some capacity that Dale is a different guy and probably missing something. Or at least, he's still calibrating, as I say in the Dale Mr. C showdown begins in part 18 when Dale becomes Doppelcooper. But I think the Bob-related trauma is only so much of the picture and isn't the focus of Dale's trauma cycle as he intuitively seems to think it is. Much as Audrey had two levels of trauma, so too does Dale. Audrey's traumas are her real-world trauma focused around her relationship with Ben Horn, which she overcame, and her lodge space-related trauma began with her rape by Doppelcooper, which led, just like with Sarah Palmer, to her birthing a child who was half-lodge. She had not overcome this at the beginning of Season 3. While Dale's traumas look like this, Bob-related trauma solved completely within Season 3, culminating in Part 17. And then there's the deeper trauma of losing all those years, as Andrew Grievous discussed well in Agent Cooper, My Thoughts and Theories on His Journey Throughout the Series. Dale's is a deeper, longer-term trauma expressed best when he shed a tear through his Dougie, uh, through his Dougie self, likely over the fact that he didn't have a child of his own, and the child that he had was unknown to him. Cooper's Bob-related trauma cycle is entirely associated with the loops that begin with Philip Gerard saying, is it future or is it past? This second, deeper-level trauma cycle of, of Cooper's is the one that repeats with the Laura Whispers. Let's look at Dale's loops chronologically again in this context. In the first cycle, Laura whispers to Dale. In the second cycle, it's the is it future or is it past loops, which happened three times, ending with a Laura whispers to Dale, or beginning with 
Alora whispers to Dale as well. But then Cooper chooses the is a future, is a past loops. And then in the third cycle, Laura whispers to Dale in the end credits. What does this mean? Dale went through three cycles of Laura whispering to him. The first cycle began with, with his Red Room dream from Episode 2 and ended with Dale entering the Lodge, and meanwhile, the second cycle began with Dale needing to choose whether to tune to Laura's whisper or to Philip Jeffries' Is It Future or Is It Past, instead of choosing to go out now. Dale chooses to do the three Philip loops within this second whisper loop. And then in the third cycle, it begins in the part 18 credits with Laura again whispering to Dale. Hopefully, Laura will sit, sit down next to Dale and once again say, you can go out now. And maybe this time he'll do it. Because if this cycle of Laura whispers follow the same pattern as the other trauma cycles, it would match up just like this. Put most simply, the first cycle goes from the timeline into the lodge, the second cycle is from within the lodge, and the third cycle goes from the lodge back to the timeline. Visually speaking, it's personified by the shape of Cooper's lodge loops, which begins with being in the lodge, and then that circle of reality would then lean into the purple section where he goes back and forth, and then he would eventually go through the first loop into the timeline, or the positive-focused energy into the timeline. So recalibrating the metaphor to tie Dale's trauma cycle to the Laura Whispers, Dale chooses to follow a darker frequency like Norma and the diner did between parts 7 and 15 before he reaches the possibility for a similar retuning to more positive pastures at the end of part 18. For one thing, the Laura Whispers cycles are literally part of the timeline. The sun can still shine through in Dale's next unseen scene just like it did outside the double R with the Otis Redding music. With all the is it future or is it past loops happening in the middle, Dale is in his stagnant processing phase, where other characters like Norma and Nadine are, showing, are shown doing similar looping behaviors. Dale's loops are more literal, but they are well within established trauma cycle patterns. Alchemically, he's only had his first coat, but he is in his absorbing phase during the entirety of Season 3, save for the last five minutes. And most interestingly, while he's doing this, he is literally living out the poem. Fire, walk with me. Through the darkness of future past, the magician longs to see. One chance out between two worlds, fire, walk with me. The is it future or is it past loops begin with Dale refusing Laura's you can go out now, and then the curtains fly away revealing darkness and a white horse, which is equated with the white of the eyes now, which means looking away. Dale is essentially flying into the darkness, as in through the darkness and 
future past is the dichotomy Philip Gerard just introduced with is it future or is it past loops. With that, there's the first line of the poem. The magician longs to see requires less dissection. Dale Cooper, able to open the red curtains with movement of his hand, is now the magician, and he cannot see, likely because he is too far away. But he sure longs to. He wants, and possibly even knows he needs, to see. One chance, C-H-A-N-T-S, slash chance, C-H-A-N-C-E, out, could be. An action Dale takes, speaking out from the darkness, which I could see as everything that happens after he was reformed in Black Smoke when he replaced Dougie Jones, speaking from inside the lodge as a tulpa-like form within the world, and chanting typically repeats or loops. Or, if it's chance, with the C-E at the end, a possibility to leave. The one chance he needed to decide between was either believe Laura when she said you can go out now or believe Philip Gerard when he comes up with this incredibly complicated explanation for why Dale can't leave until his doppelganger comes back in. Between two worlds, as far as I'm concerned, means Dale is in a state between the timeline and lodge space and the material world and non-material world in this in-between reality structure. Fire, walk with me, can mean energy not unlike electricity flow through me because I intend to use you with a particular intention. But just as the fourth loop is unexplained and fourth diary page is undiscovered, so too does the poem never explain whether the poem is meant for positive or negative intent. It can be used for either, but the more I write about Twin Peaks, the more I believe Philip Gerard's poem has a level of prophecy for Dale Cooper, and that we have seen it literally played out over the 18 parts of season three. What does it all mean for Dale? He may stay on Jeffrey's path and be absorbed by the Black Lodge, unstuck entirely from the timeline, or he may turn things around and possibly even return to the timeline when Laura tells him you can go out now. The fourth loop. So how does one decide which of Dale's cycles is a primary one? It's just like deciding whether season three is a dream or in the real world, or whether Frost's or Lynch's interpretation is more important than the other. I expand on this dilemma of choosing in The Twin Peaks Ending, Does Dale Fix His Heart or Die? But for the, pur- for the purposes here, The answer to which loop is the primary one is this, neither. My preferred way to differentiate the Cooper cycles is this. The Gerard time loops are of the purgatorial state, exclusively dealing with trauma. The Laura Whisper cycles are of the alchemical state of evolution. And as I've already described in part four, I've given the interrelated nature of trauma and alchemical evolution cycles a shape. And it's that infinity loop symbol, which has trauma, processing, breakthrough, energy, all the way back to trauma on one, on one side of the loop. And then we have, after breakthrough, you could split off and get, get shovel, understanding, use shovel, interpersonal alchemy, be someone's shovel, and help. Going back to get shovel. 
These two cycles are obviously related, but the darkness of the Gerard loops being nested right inside the cycle of Laura's whisper cycles gives me hope that Dale is going in the right direction after all, even though all of season three appears to point him straight towards Lodge Space. I suspect Tamara Preston's final statement and final dossier describes this exact coexistence. She says, Is the evil in us real? Is it an intrinsic part of us, a force outside us, or nothing more than a reflection of the void? How do we hold both fear and wonder in the mind at once? Does staring into this, into this darkness offer up an answer or a resolution? What does it give us to hold? Does it reveal anything at all? Or can the simple impossible act of persisting to look at what's in front of us finally pierce the blackness and reward us with a glimpse of something eternal beyond? Is that heaven? How do we manage it? The only answer I can console myself with is this. What if the truth lies just beyond the limits of our fear, and the only way to reach it is to never look away? What if that's why we can never quit trying to overcome it in every moment we're alive? And then back to me, in the Gerard loops, did Dale Cooper pierce the darkness that he was in? Did he finally move through the Gerard loops and move on to the last stage of the trauma cycle where he chooses which direction to send his energy? Did he take a long, cold look at the evil in himself and alchemically exceed beyond the limits of his fear? I suspect the answer is yes, because Dale's breakthrough moment of what year is this is a much less wordy version of what Jacoby's realization was from Secret History of Twin Peaks, which I will share again here. But the truth is, Laura's death has broken me. My own belief system, the fantasy that I could hold these worlds in balance, inner life, outer reality, and bring the truth of one closer to the other like some free-thinking hippie Prometheus, is shattered. What a hapless fool I've been. Actions have consequences. Whatever happens from here, whatever the squares decide about my professional fate, if I can survive this ordeal, find the strength to dig my way out of the shit, I make this vow. No more lies. Only truth. Straight up. To everyone. And technically, he doesn't say dig my way out of the shit. He just says out of it. But, you know, it's there. Dale, as I promised in the first part of this exploration, brought the material and non-material universes closer to one another by switching states with his doppelganger. And he thought he could bring the dream logic of the Lodge onto the reality of the timeline, as if that could heal it. Much as Jacoby realized in 1989, I believe Dale is finally entering his final stage of processing trauma the same one where Jacoby's hubris breaks down and which leads, with time, to Jacoby's understanding of how to truly help the world he resides in. Because by final dossier, Tamara Preston now has this to say about Jacoby. There is an air of the Taros Magus about the man, an ancient archetype of a magician who's outlived or conquered the base temptations of life to reach a spiritual serenity while still maintaining the height of his powers. 
As I think of Dr. Jacoby slash Dr. Amp, a character like Prospero comes to mind, a man in the last act of his life who survived the tempest of human turmoil and by doing so gained the ability to see beyond its commonplace illusions. A man who lives at once with nature and its pagan spirits, whose developed senses can now pierce the veil of existence and leave him able and willing to share the wisdom one minds from such hard-earned territory. King Lear would be the tragic version, a privileged man who arrives at the same place through loss and hubris that will eventually cost him his life. Now me, your author, um, I've thought for a while that the Lear reference was calling out Dale and his actions of traveling back in time, but Jacoby was in the same position as Dale during his breakthrough moment of Secret History of Twin Peaks. Jacoby thought he could save a girl from dying, and she died anyway. He learned from his mistake and started a cycle of healing and light within a Twin Peaks being drowned in darkness by the river-like dream of Lodge Space that Margaret was warning Hawk about in Part 10. And those people who he helped were able to retune themselves from the in-between reality right to the timeline. Dale has a chance to do the same kind of turnaround, just because his metaphorical state of understanding has taken a literal foothold upon reality because he has the powers of a magician, does not mean that he can't outlive or conquer his own base temptations to reach a similar spiritual serenity. He too can survive this tempest and see beyond the illusion that he's veiled over the timeline. I believe, much like the Season 3 characters, that we viewers have been presented with a choice of how to see the ending. Do we choose to believe that it's moving in a positive direction or a negative one? If I had to chart my own evolving understanding over time as a viewer, it would look like this. I'm seeing it in the second loop, and uh, with Part 17... I'm feeling optimistic. This is how Laura will be in that final fire walk with me flashback scene with Dale. But then part 18 started and I had apprehension, which moved me over into the third loop. When it moves over to lodge space, I'm wondering, did Dale screw up? But then I'm able to move back into the third loop with, is my favorite fictional character a bad guy? But then I think about it more and I end up in the second loop with the final dossier being released. And it seems to reinforce the changes are not what they seem. So, you know, maybe we don't have to believe everything happened in the reality of Twin Peaks. Maybe it was just in a lodge spacey zone for Dale. And that moved me over to the first loop where it seems that Dale might be coming out of the fog at the end. He still has a chance to choose a positive direction if he's willing to put in the work. And that's my own personal chart, making it through uh, Twin Peaks Season 3. I chose to see Twin Peaks moving in a positive direction, freshly surfacing from a period of darkness. There is hope, both for Dale and for the timeline, and there is also work ahead, and Dale's going to need more donuts. You've just heard me finish reading A Twin Peaks Theory, which was a collected version of a five-part series of articles published between January 7th and January 11th of 2019. Thanks go out to Adam Stewart, T. Kyle King, Kylie Carr, 
Cameron Crane, Brian Allen, and Rob King for their tenacity in reading all parts of this theory and providing me feedback during my writing process. Thanks also go to Paul Billington for rendering the Season 3 timeline image and Matt Armitage for rendering the infinity-shaped trauma cycle image that I continue to go back to. And I know I said it at the beginning, but thanks again from me and from Elle in the electricity and from Mitch in the producer booth and everybody at Ruminations Radio Network and everybody at 25YL. You can find all our collective work at ruminationsradionetwork.com for all the podcasts and all the articles come from 25yearslaterside.com. And um, that's where all the rest of my Electricity Nexus columns are, too. So, uh, yeah, we'll, um, we'll see you in the discords. We'll see you in the social medias. And um, we'll see you next time when I go into Twin Peaks episode 21. Until then, I'll see you in my dreams.